The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, our conclusion of our study on this book, the 33rd study. Been going for some time here. Chapter 16, Paul's final words to the Corinthian church, at least with this epistle, beginning at verse 12, concluding this letter. Hear the word of God. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we think of these moving and stirring hymns we have sung, describing the great love of Jesus Christ, describing the firm foundation we have in the word of God, describing the rock of ages cleft for us. And we pray that as we come to your word again, we who have often heard your word, we who are blessed with Bibles filling our shelves. We pray that you would bring it to us with a freshness and a power, that we would see Jesus more clearly, that we would trust him more fully, that we would love Jesus Christ our Lord, and that we would be changed by the power of your Spirit as we seek you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We sang the hymn about our hope is built on nothing less. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You children, you've probably been to the beach and have stood in maybe a foot of water at the beach. And just if you stand in one place while the waves go in and out, you know that with the undertow, the sand slowly erodes under your feet. And if you do that for any length of time, you're soon kind of tottering on the remaining sand that's under your feet. 
and it, you could tip over. Of course, you probably at that point, you decide to step to another place of sand, and you're fined. But it just brings out this whole idea of it's very difficult to stand firm if the ground underneath you is eroding. We come to Paul's final summing up of his letter, a great letter addressing many issues, his closing words with a number of themes here that Paul touches briefly on. And I want to look at his final words here under the concept of standing firm, which we see especially in verse 13. So we have four main points here as we look at the final words of this epistle. The first point is this, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the truth of God, in the gospel, in the faith. We see that in verse 13, where Paul uses these four words, which are military metaphors, calling the Corinthians to stand firm. They're closely related ideas. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. There's a slight different nuance of each one of those. The first one, be watchful, certainly has to do with the idea of uh, don't let down your guard. You're on guard duty all the time, in a sense. And then stand firm in the faith, that idea that we're to be strong, which it goes on to say that. And the one phrase you may be wondering about, act like men. Remember the King James says, quit you like men or acquit yourself like men. And this command applies to women as well. It's this military metaphor that is basically talking about be courageous in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord, as Ephesians 6 says. Be like soldiers. The idea of all four of these is Paul is getting across this idea of keep holding to the truth of God. He's had to correct a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of errors, a lot of things bordering on heresy in the book. And he says, don't be faint-hearted or weak when you're under spiritual attack. That applies to every Christian. The language is possibly borrowed from Psalm 34, verse 24, at least the last two military words here, where the psalmist says, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. I like the way that psalm puts it. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Those words in and of themselves, we probably would apply them uh, most readily to the context of maybe opposition coming from outside of the church, the attacks of the world, Satan's attacks, spiritual warfare, maybe persecution that might break out. But in light of all that we've seen in 1 Corinthians up until now, more likely the thinking of Paul as he comes to this point and as he exhorts them with these words He's probably thinking more, be watchful, stand firm, be strong, in light of the doctrinal errors that have sprung up among you yourselves and that are dividing the church, false teachers having come in and are confusing, and also the context of 1 Corinthians, stand firm in light of the temptations to sin in various ways that we've talked about here, throughout 1 Corinthians, and even members of the Corinthian church are falling into such temptations and such sins. 
Be strong. Hold to the truth of the word of God. Whatever the context might be, persecution, which would, which would involve the temptation to stop holding to the gospel, or the confusion of, of people pushing doctrinal errors at you, and your, your mindset is no longer founded on the word of God in some way, or even the everyday, ordinary temptations to sin, how do you and I stand firm in the faith? How do we obey this command? Well, we do so by continuing to hold to the truth of the Word of God by faith. We believe the Word of God over the lies of this world, over the lies that may even arise in the church, over the lies that we might even entertain in our own hearts and minds. We hold to the truth of the the Word of God by faith as we continue to trust Jesus Christ and as we continue to seek to repent and turn away from whatever temptations, whatever sins, and whatever would lead us astray from the Lord. Stand firm. Be strong. Be courageous. Watch. Last December, World Magazine ran an article about someone who suffered greatly in standing firm for his faith. World Magazine gave this Lifetime Achievement Award to Armando Valadares, He actually uh, was honored by President Reagan during Reagan's presidency. He's a Cuban Christian who, from 1960 to his release in 1982, experienced imprisonment and torture in Castro's prison. And just to quote a little bit from the article that ran in World at the time, in his later book, Against All Hope, Valadares says this, describing his experience over these many years. 8,000 days of hunger, of systematic beatings, of hard labor, of solitary confinement, of cells with steel-planked windows and doors, of solitude. 8,000 days of struggling to prove that I was a human being. 8,000 days of testing my religious convictions, my faith, of fighting the hate my atheistic jailers were trying to instill in me with each bayonet thrust. I won't tell you about all the tortures he experienced, but he did stand firm. Many Christian friends that he had who were also taken in died within a short period of time in their imprisonment. But he later says that he has this quote, when you think about what standing firm involves, and I know that this is an extreme case, but it's certainly an example to us. He says, uh, I never asked God to take me out of jail. I asked him for the strength to be able to go through this. I never asked God to take me out because I knew there was a purpose for it. I started seeking God more and each time came out stronger than ever. I never, I never remember being in solitary confinement alone. I always felt God's presence. And then he goes on to say that he was grateful to his wife who led what became an international campaign for his release that was finally successful. But it's interesting, there's another longer article in World Magazine about him when they interview him and they talk about actually near the end of that time, he didn't know it was near the end, he was being pressed and he was being pressed to renounce his faith in Christ And they wanted him to write a written statement doing this, and he refused and he refused. And finally, the interrogator just sat down with him in a room and said, look, you don't have to write anything. 
You don't have to tell anyone else. We're not going to return. We're not going to record anything. But all you have to do to be released is just tell me. Just say it to me that you renounce Jesus Christ. He couldn't do it, obviously. But just think what that temptation would be, the power of it, to just give a little bit there in order to be released. What an example and certainly an encouragement to us to stand firm in the much less, clearly less uh, stringent persecution that you and I face. So stand firm in the faith, whatever your circumstances might be. Secondly, we want to look at our text, and we go to verse 14 for this one. Stand firm in a spirit of love. Verse 14, Paul brings up this theme again. Let all that you do be done in love. And most certainly, he is hearkening back to the love chapter, chapter 13, one of the few passages in Scripture that many people know when they don't know any other things that the Bible says. That tremendous chapter on love that we looked at earlier. And in a sense, verse 14 is a balancing note to verse 13. A balancing note in the sense that strength that is apart from love easily becomes harshness. It becomes cold. But love without strong adherence to truth becomes empty sentimentality. So we need both be strong, and love. Both of those have to be held in balance in our lives. And the Corinthians definitely needed to, remind, to be reminded to do all in love. If you followed through this book with us or you know anything about the Corinthian church and its divisions and its scandals and its problems, this was a church racked with problems on every side. And yet these were believers who knew Jesus Christ And they needed to be called and called again to be reminded to do everything in love. We remember in chapters 1 and 3, their divisiveness. In chapter 6, their lawsuits they were taking out against each other. Chapter 8, they're sinning against each other in the issues of weak and strong in terms of food that had been offered in the marketplace to idols, causing others to stumble because of their stance about certain things. And then we remember chapter 11, their abuse of the Lord's Supper itself, in which they weren't even waiting for all of the Christians to come, and they were eating and going ahead and all kinds of abuses like that. And then chapters 12 through 14, their misuse of spiritual gifts and their insidious pride, in which they became puffed up in their spiritual gifts. These are just some of the ways that the Corinthians needed to be clearly reminded, whatever you do, do it in love. And so verse 14 is the most succinct and powerful one-sentence solution to all those problems. Love one another. I want to remind us that this command to love is not optional for us. I think sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, some Christians are good at loving Others are good at telling the truth. I think I'm the kind that's good at telling the truth. I'm not going to worry about love. Of course, others might say the same thing. We can't pick and choose both of these, standing for truth, standing firm, and love, doing it in love, must be our goal. We must keep the two together. We had Dr. Steve Nichols speak at our presbytery a couple years ago. He was... uh, a well-known professor at Lancaster Bible College who has since gone to head up um, uh, the ministry of R.C. Sproul and Ligonier. 
and he spoke to our presbytery that day about the major theological controversy of the last decade or two, which concerns the meaning of justification by faith. What does the Bible teach when it says justification? I'm not going to go into all of that now, but it has been the major theological controversy of evangelicalism in our time. But it always struck me what Dr. Nichols said as he described this controversy and led us through it in terms of the right theological viewpoint. He said that this is the first, the first major theological controversy in the history of the church to be carried out in the internet age. And it has been a disaster. Because he says in the internet there's no waiting to have an editor look over what you're saying before you write the article, before it goes to print, or before it goes into a book form. He says, no, all sides just type up on their blog or on their website immediately whatever response they have come to mind, and it is far from loving. It is awful, he said. So I guess that's the nature of theological controversy nowadays. It's in the Internet, and you can say what you want, but there's very little love or humility. No, we're not to be that way. The Bible calls us to stand firm, but to do so in a spirit of love. Our third point is that we are to stand firm together with the right attitude to spiritual leaders. Stand firm together, being subject to leaders. And we see this in verses 15 through 20, really the main portion of our text, but we're not going to go into it in great depth. Let me read it to you again. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. I'm going to stop there because I want us to just think about this. You have to read these verses knowing what all this letter has been about. We know that it began with Paul correcting them about these deep divisions. One was saying, I'm of Apollos. One was saying, I'm of Peter. And and I'm of Christ. But... No, he's saying, look, Paul got information about the Corinthian church. We find in chapter 1 that he got an oral report from Chloe's household. We're not sure who brought that report, but he got it from somebody who had been traveling from Corinth to Ephesus where Paul was writing, where Paul was ministering. So he gets an oral report. And then also, apparently, a letter from the Corinthians has been brought to Paul, and most likely, It's from these, we might say, almost official delegates of the church, these three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And throughout the letter, Paul has been responding point by point. We've seen this grammatical phrase, now concerning, now concerning this, now concerning that. We saw that there are various times that he's answering the letter that the Corinthians have written to him. Very likely, as I say, this three-man delegation brought it, brought the letter to him, And it's clear that what he writes here is that these men, Stephanus Stephanus especially, were of the mindset of the Apostle Paul. They were with Paul in spirit. They understood what he was trying to say to the Corinthian church. And uh, we don't know 
much about any of them. We know the most about Stephanus, who was probably wealthy. The church met in his health. It's possible that he was on a business trip to Ephesus. All we know are the names of the other two. Fortunatus means blessed or lucky, and Achaicus just means one from the province of Achaia. Uh, It could be that those were former slaves and that they were formerly slaves in Stephanus' household. Uh, It could be that they were, or still are, freemen. It's very likely they were part of Stephanus' household. But clearly, these church leaders are with Paul on the issues that have been problematic for the Corinthian church. And now they've come to him. We see that he says that they've refreshed Paul's spirit. They've brought him news of the church. They've talked to him. They're going to go back to the Corinthian church. And you know what they're going back to. All the problems at Corinth are not solved. They're taking Paul's letter most likely with them into this hornet's nest of division, of problems, of error. And so the church is needing to be reminded, you need to stand firm as the body of Christ together with a right recognition of the leadership God has given you, being submissive and being thankful for them. And notice that these spiritual leaders, as they're described here, clearly have the characteristics of being good, wise, spiritual leaders. Verse 15 describe them that that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The ultimate characteristic of a spiritual leader in the church is that he serves others. And, And then there's this verse 16 description, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. The idea to everyone who works and toils with us. And that sense of that second word, laborer or toils, has this sense of working long and hard. It's not like this is a cushy job that you're being, uh, you're just in it for the money or you're in it for your own advancement or you're in it for uh, your reputation. No, these are exemplary servants of God and they are serving the Lord And now, as they visit Paul, they're refreshing Paul as well. And he concludes verse 8 by saying, Give recognition to such people. They are not seeking a cult-like control and domination of people's lives, but they are Christ-like and being a blessing to the church. And Paul is saying all this in that he is trying to support their ministry and service among the Corinthians, which is this divided and struggling local church. The church needs unity, and to maintain that, the church needs wise and mature leaders who will pour themselves out for the good of the flock. As a pastor here at Westminster, I get especially blessed to be able to see so many leaders like that in our church. It is a great blessing to see that in the various ministries of this church, in the official leadership, so to speak, but in the unofficial everyday ministry of the church that goes on in all these different ways. We have been blessed as a church year after year, really for decades, of seeing leaders and teachers and servants in this church who have not sought to build their own little kingdoms, but have sought the blessing and the upbuilding of the sheep and the outreach of the gospel through this church. And it's a great blessing to me to be able to see that. 
It's a wonderful thing to see and a cause for great thanksgiving to God. In the last 20 years, I've been here 21 years, in the last 21 years, I don't know that I can think of another church in our presbytery who has, that has not been racked with serious divisions during that time. That has either split the church in half or a large portion of the church has left or at least a minority of the church has split off. That's not unusual for church life and experience. Uh, I hope it never happens here. I pray that it doesn't. But certainly one of the reasons why it hasn't has to do with the kind of servant leadership that Westminster Church has been blessed with for these years. And we can thank God for that. It brings home to me the point, we stand firm in the faith together. We need one another. We need the body of Christ. And it comes out as well in verses 19 and 20 with these greetings. The same point comes out, and we see how much it means to have this wider unity of the church, where Paul says the churches of Asia send you greetings. He's writing from Asia Minor, from Ephesus, we assume. And then he mentions Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, who was a well-known couple to the Corinthians because they had lived at Corinth for a while, and then they had gone to Ephesus to work, and of course they were working with Paul and others. They're the ones who directed Apollos when he was confused about who Jesus Christ really was, and was there another baptism? He'd only been baptized with the baptism of John. You can read that in the book of Acts. And then he says, together with the church in their house. So there's a house church in their house. Uh, Verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This traditional uh, Middle Eastern hug or kiss on the cheek. These greetings are not just empty words. They are real and genuine. They reflect the spiritual unity and the mutual encouragement of the wider body of Christ. They bring home this point. We stand firm in the faith together. That kind of encouragement is a great and central part of God's kingdom advancing. Many of you were involved in the missions conference a week or two ago and saw that in action. I'm always amazed every year to see how we as a church are so blessed and encouraged by missionaries among us, and so many of them say, during and afterwards, we were so blessed and it's just so wonderful to have so many of you who know us, who care for us, who pray for us. It happens every year, and it happens throughout the year as well. I had a personal taste of that the other week. I think this was the week before the missions conference. I came into the office Tuesday and listened to my voicemail, and one of the voicemails was Chuck Walton. Many of you know Chuck Walton, who was a youth pastor here for a number of years. He was the youth pastor when my kids were in the youth group. And, and Chuck is just a very winsome, but a very emotional guy. And I, I saved this voicemail. I don't know if I'm going to ever re- erase it from my uh, voicemail because Chuck goes on this. He, wa- he and his wife, Aaron were in Florida the weekend before at the Ligonier Conference. And before they left, they stopped. They realized, oh, Steve Light's church is nearby. And Chuck had a great influence on our son Stephen's life and his walk with the Lord. And he and Aaron said, let's visit that church. So Chuck was talking about their visit to Stephen Light's little church there. Of course, it's not Stephen's church. It's the Lord's church, but that's how we tend to talk. And, and he said, John, I just come from 
gathering all these gems of gold and jewels from great speakers from all over the world, expositing the New Testament and the Old Testament. Then then he says, I went to your son's little storefront church, and there I thought to myself, this is the church. We're here, and the God's people are here, and Stephen's faithfully given the word of God. And just what an encouragement. And as he said this, he kept breaking down and crying, you know, just I had to just listen to all this. I've listened to it 15 times now, of course, and brought, brought Patty in to listen to it. And, but it's interesting because later that week, Stephen said to me, oh, Dad, Chuck and Aaron came to see us, and we were just so blessed. They just don't know how blessed we were, how much it meant to us. When you're kind of out on the front line and you have 35 or 40 people coming, and as somebody like that comes, we just, it made our week, it made our month. That's how we need to read the greetings here. Christianity in Paul's time was still a very despised minority. And when he says, the brothers who are with us greet you, the household church from Aquila and Prisca, they greet you. All all the brothers greet you. All the brothers and sisters greet you. That's the kind of sense it is. We stand firm in the faith only together. Well, finally, we stand firm, centered always on Jesus Christ the Lord. Verses 21 to 24. We stand firm, centered on Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul takes the pen, apparently, and writes his signature greeting that people knew what his handwriting was like. Galatians makes us think that it was probably large because his eyesight wasn't very good at this time. And he's, he's uh, taken the pen from the scribe that was probably Sosthenes, and he's writing these verses himself. And he's looking back, and he's just saying a few key things. And and first of all, he says in verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. A very sobering note, isn't it? It's not like he's talking about believers in general here. He's not just saying all unbelievers are cursed. You know, he's saying, he's talking about those who are within the bounds of the Corinthian church, within the visible church, who are troubling the church, who are provoking divisions, and who are leading people into serious error and possibly even into heresy. And he says, these truly, if they continue in their way, they do not love the Lord if they do that, and they are accursed. We saw that a number of times he refers to, for example, in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Or, for example, we saw in 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's a heretical point. It's a very serious error. In a sense, this is one last warning to those at Corinth who persist in deviating from the gospel. It's similar to what we saw in Galatians. If you read the introduction, the first part of Galatians, where Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In a sense, they're saying anyone who obscures the gospel and who turns God's people from the gospel, let that person be accursed. It is to mean to not to truly love the Lord. So, He's saying, stand firm, centered on Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus Christ is not Lord and King and God. But then the next thing Paul says in verse 22 at the end is Maranatha. You know that word from the use of it that we still use in English. We still use a number of Aramaic words. We 
probably don't use the word anathema, let him be accursed. Maybe you use that sometimes. We, some of you use an Aramaic word every day. You say, amen. There you go. You're speaking Aramaic. But Maranatha, the Lord come. May the Lord come. It's a prayer for the Lord's return. We sang it in our first hymn. And it's probably tied into this anathema. Paul, in further responding to this anathema, is affirming that the Lord whom these false teachers reject, is indeed coming. We sang, the Lord comes to judge the earth in righteousness. And those who do not love him are under the anathema and in danger of being rejected by him. Reminds us of Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. And then Revelation closes with, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We stand firm, loving the Lord and remembering his coming, living in light of that and trusting him and seeking to walk worthy of the Lord until he comes again. But then in verse 23, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. That's really a summary of the fact that we all need the grace of God every day. And that stands for us as well. And then finally, in verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's interesting. This is the only epistle Paul closes this way. And it's almost like this is his most difficult child. This is his problem child, church. And so he's got to, he's been at loggerheads with them and he's had to say a lot of hard things, but he's emphasizing at the end that he loves them. In many ways, he's had to correct them on almost every point. But he's like a parent speaking to a child, saying, I love you. I'm only seeking your good. Please remember that. But even in saying that, he still has to be centered on Jesus Christ because he says, my love be with all, with you all in Christ Jesus. It's all because of their unity in Jesus Christ. And so we need to ask as I close, is your life centered on Jesus Christ? Are you standing firm on him and his word? Is he your trust? Is he your great salvation? Does your heart go out to Jesus Christ? Christians certainly may disagree about many things, but we cannot be wrong on this and then stand before him on that great day. We must love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ please stand firm in his love. Father, we ask that you would make us strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Thank you for this wonderful letter that we have studied for weeks. Thank you for your word that always builds us up. May it have application to our lives this week as we seek to live for Jesus our Lord. We stand in his love. Amen.